Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of November 9th, 2020. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm joined again this week by Josh Blank, research director of the Texas Politics Project. Good afternoon, Josh. Good afternoon to you. It's been just a few days, really, since our post-election uh, off-schedule podcast last week that we uh, we did on recorded on Thursday afternoon. Not a ton has changed. I guess at the <laughs> national level, they have called the race for for Joe Biden, though I think that was anticipated. The Trump uh, campaign, and to some extent, the Trump administration are <laughs> are resisting that call thus far. And so that remains to be resolved. And I think as that continues, maybe next week, we'll return to the impact of that on the, the legitimacy of, of, or people's views of the legitimacy of elections, which I've been thinking about a lot. But we might as well see how the next couple of turns of that go and what that looks like. I think today we want to join the discussion on polling a little bit more fully and and what went wrong in in 2020, which is a... The most deja vu of deja vu conversations ever, I think. I was say, what went wrong in 2020? Well, let's start with the polling. <laughs> You're right. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that's there's a lot of that going around in terms of the number of things people could talk about. I mean, we do want to kind of round up some of the usual suspects. I mean, this is a very obviously a very active discussion going on right now. Um, yeah, you know, you know can from I, you stem know- to stern. I just want to throw something out there. I mean, I'm just thinking about this in the moment. I mean, we're being dismissive of it almost as a as a as a point of self deprecation, but I mean, I do think that you know there's a there's an important thing that, you know in terms of focusing on this polling, which is just you know in interpreting what happened in the election and our understanding of it and the meaning of it. Ultimately, you know, the best you know really the way that we're going to get the most depth of understanding that is going to come from polling, which might sound like a joke right now, but that's kind of part of the problem. And so it yeah. is actually not unimportant to really, you know, deal with uh, what were what was not a very good day for polling. Yeah. And, you know, and when we say not a good day, I mean, it was not a good day. I mean, you know, early kind of compilations of of the state level polling showed the polls being off virtually everywhere and and in some key area some of the key states by by quite a bit seven and a half if you look at the the polling averages generally the the trump margin was underestimated by as much as you know seven and a half points um and that was pretty uniform, you know, not uniform, but that was, that was pretty true across the board. A couple of states were reasonably close, right. but most were pretty far outside of what we would have think. You know, I mean, it's an it's an average. I'll pull the polling averages are what we're looking at. But if we were to put margins of error on those polling averages, they were outside of what you would say. Well, that was close. Yeah. And, and the real problem here is, and, and this will be the first, you know, <laughs> Uh, glossary term watchword. Here we go. But like, but it's also systemic error, and that's part of the problem here. It's not right. just that there was error; it's the fact that all of the error 
went in the same direction, whether you were looking at all the national polling, whether you were looking at the polls in individual states, in all cases, they were underestimating Trump's support. And that's, right. that's, that's, you know, the real, the real problem here. Yeah. Basically, I, you know, I guess in, if you look at the 11 competitive states, 10 over predicted Biden's performance. <laughs> right. Right. And, right. you know, that's not really going to, that doesn't say much. And in Texas, it was, you know, the, the same phenomena and, and in the same ballpark, right? If you yeah. look at the polling averages. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, I mean, even before getting to that, you know, you make this, you know, we talk about 10 states, 11 states and something that, you know, we don't have a lot of time to make in other venues for this, but I'll, I'll make it here, which is, and it doesn't really matter what kind of state we're talking about. So if you start thinking, well, was it just, you know, Republican states or just Democratic states or was it states with early voting, but states with, or states without, or it doesn't matter. Whole range of possibilities. It doesn't look like the underlying conditions could explain the outcomes. So let's just set that aside. In Texas, uh, the averages, you know, the polling average going into the election expected a pretty narrow Trump victory. 538 said that Trump was up on average by 1.1 points. Real Clear Politics, another site that aggregates these, said that he was up by 1.3. It looks like he's going to lose. He's going to end up winning by between five and six points. Now, do you want to sit? <laughs> let me ask you, Jim. Do you want to keep talking about the Texas polling for a minute, or yeah, let's you know? do that. Let's. I mean, yeah, people I mean, are going to be interested in that. Okay. I mean, you know, I, I think one really notable thing about that error is is that it, it got worse as we got closer to the election, which is a strange phenomenon because generally we tend to think that polls are going to get more accurate yeah. as we get closer to the election. Yeah, we because, think it's going to be the op the opposite of what happened. Right, but but if you looked at but if we just look at the average of the polls conducted, just a simple average. If you're a, if you're a stats geek out there, I'm just this is just a simple average of the polls conducted prior to early voting. So in the month of September and the first you know few days of October before early voting started, Trump was up by 4.3 points on average. So not, not far off from the five to six points, certainly within the margin of error of that polling. If you look at the polls conducted during early voting, Trump was up by 1.7% on average, which, you know, I mean, is kind of striking and also makes no sense. I mean, I'm just going to say that. I think it's, you know, in the sense that uh, if there's one thing we knew about these candidates in this campaign is that, you know, voters were decided. I mean, voters were clearly decided how they, yeah. they knew how they felt about both candidates. They certainly knew who they how they felt about Donald Trump. And, you know, the idea that you had this sort of consistent Trump lead, you know, really, again, in the sort of, let's say, you know, four to eight point range for much of the campaign. And then in the last month, all of a sudden, despite the fact that every other poll up to that point said, you know, 90 plus percent of voters know who they're going to vote for. All the partisans are going to vote for the partisan, you know, basically for their partisan candidate. And yet somehow in that final month, the idea that the polls would tighten by three, four points is, is a little hard to believe. Easy to say in retrospect, obviously, but also it didn't really make sense when it was happening. Well, I mean, you know, and I, I think this gets to a little bit to how we discuss these things. But I mean, mm -hmm. I think, you know, we'll put a pin in the fact that we're going to talk about, you know, how people put together their likely voter pools. And that seemed to be one of the things we were looking at. It's like, who are these voters that these polls are measuring that are producing such closer outcomes? And we, we talked about that a little bit at the time, mm -hmm. you know, but I mean, I one of the things I, you know, that I'm struck by as I think back on the discussion of this is just, as you say, how much, you know, the specific fundamentals of what was going on, you know, seemed not, you know, seemed to be telling us that Trump was going to do less well than he, than he did in, in 2016, which turned out to be the right. case. Absolutely. 
But we kept looking, you know, we, you know, I feel like we were missing three or four points all along. I mean, I think on this podcast two or three weeks ago or, you know, I don't know if it was the week before, we were sitting there kind of trying to do the back of the envelope math and saying, okay, so, mm-hmm. you know, he's eroded maybe five or six points among Republicans. Right. And he's eroded, a, you know, there's this sliver of independent voters that have... Mm-hmm. You know, flipped out, and we never could quite get that to add up. You know, to an erosion of you know seven or eight points, which is what the polling averages were telling us. Right, right. I mean, I mean, I should, yeah. I mean, I should add. You know, when I was saying, you know, going into the election, that that everybody's opinion, you know, seemed seemed so demonstrably fixed. But I mean, the story of the Trump presidency in Texas, to to a large extent, was the extent to which attitudes towards the president, his behaviors, the administration were incredibly fixed incredibly early. I mean, I remember a poll we conducted in one of the more turbulent periods of the Trump presidency after Charlottesville, I think. Was what happened, there was a lot of, I mean, this was at the point at which it was Charlottesville had happened. That was when uh, Colin Kaepernick started kneeling during the national anthem and sort of the, the sort of fight with the NFL over that. There were a lot of a lot of things going on and we ended up doing a whole battery of job approval metrics, specific job approval metrics on how Trump was handling these things. And again, it was, I think the list was like, you know, 10 or 16 items Yeah, it was long. a huge battery, yeah. And I mean, some of these things were demonstrably going poorly or were, you know, clearly, you know, I would say by just an objective standard, not a great handling of whatever the situation would be. And, you know, attitudes were just so polarized and so solid that, you know, a majority of Republicans, I think, you know, expressed approval and relatively strong approval. On pretty much everything we tested, you know, the majority of Democrats, you know, expressed disapproval and in most cases strong disapproval on most of the areas we tested. And this was, you know, I think there was an expectation that the way that Trump was Trump was approaching the presidency and really, you know, his sort of jettisoning norms and all these kinds of things would lead to some sort of a backlash. And we never saw it. And that was two years ago. I mean, right. at least. And, and, and there was and it's very continued. little of it. And there was very little evidence of evidence of it right up to the eve of the election. Yeah, nothing changed. And so, you know, I mean, it does, you know, the narrative at the time and some, you know, in retrospect, and we, and we talked about this, I think some at the time that, you know, the narrative was that the Democrats were going to, were either going to do one of two things. They were going to benefit from defections away from Trump, of which there was no evidence, mm-hmm. or they were going to change the composition of the electorate. Right. And as we char, and as we, and as we, started looking at the early voting data, I think there was a there was a real tendency to kind of say, okay, well, there's this big group of voters that we don't know anything about. Right. Right. And that which was we- those general election only voters or those those voters with no primary records. And I think it turned out that those voters didn't look very different than everyone else. Well, and I would say, you know, even beyond that, you know, even setting aside what we didn't know, there's also what we did know, which is, you know, even within the the, the huge surge in early voting turnout, and we mentioned Derek Ryan last week, Republican consultant who analyzes, yeah. uh, especially early voting in particular and, and provides information on it. You know, it wasn't as though Democrats were outpacing Republicans. I mean, when I say Democrats, I mean Democrats who have a consistent history of voting in Democratic primaries or voters yeah. have a consistent, right, versus voters who have a consistent history of voting in Republican primaries. Ultimately, we know those are Democratic and Republican voters the 90, you know, right. let's say 98% plus of the time. And it wasn't as though with this surge in turnout, Democrats were rushing ahead of Republicans and, you know, creating a deficit that they would have to make up on election day if the remainder of those voters turned out to be, let's just say, split 50-50. It wasn't even looking that way. 
And so I do wonder, I mean, one of the things I wonder, I don't have an answer for this is, you know, to the extent that, you know, pollsters were finding increasingly tight races in Texas, you know, an increasingly tight race in Texas in the final month, I wonder what justification they had for believing that. I just, I don't know. It's, a, but I mean, that's an aside. <laughs> we can come back to yeah. that. I well, I mean, yeah, we may not, you know, that may be an unanswerable question, although it may have something to do with, you know, something we talked about last week, which was, you know, faulty assumptions about what they could expect from, from Hispanic voters in Texas. Yeah. I mean, I saw, among you know, other fun- things. I mean, there are a lot of candidates to be fair. Yeah. And it's funny. I mean, with that, you know, I mean, we talked about this last week about the extent to which uh, you know, we consistently find somewhere between 30 and 40% of the Hispanic voting population uh, supporting Republican candidates. And we found that consistently, you know, it was consistent before Trump came to office. It's been consistent since he's come to office. But I think I saw, you know, I think this was from one of the other, you know, big national pollsters released, uh, you know, basically the party ID breakdown or the vote choice breakdown amongst, you know, a large sample of, of Hispanics of different origins. And yeah. so whether the origin country or, you know, is Mexico versus El Salvador versus, you know, Puerto Rico, Cuba. And, I, you know, what they found is not surprising, you know, Cuban Americans were the most Republican group amongst Hispanics. And, you know, it was funny. I, mean, I was looking at it and amongst, you know, me- you know, say people with Mexican ancestry, of which that's the majority of Texas Hispanics. It was the same numbers. It was about 70-30 Democratic lead. And that's, again, that's nationally. That's not Texas. And so it's like, you know, I don't know why this was such a surprise to people that Biden wasn't doing better or wasn't doing, you know, again, I would say beyond reasonable expectations with Hispanics because it was beyond reasonable. And I just, and I wonder to what extent, you know, again, this influenced people's reading of the polls. If the assumption was, again, this thing that, again, there's been no evidence for that. If we just keep putting more Hispanics in the electorate, eventually that Hispanic group is going to become more democratic. Well, I don't know if that's true. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of discussion of that. Um, I don't know if you saw it. I was gonna, I was gonna send it to you, and I don't know if I remember that. Our colleague David Leal has a co-authored piece in the Monkey Cage blog in the Washington Post that talks about some of these issues and you know expectations getting ahead of reality. And I think, you know, it, it, it's been a cliche of talking about the Latino, you know, the quote-unquote Latino electorate mm-hmm. for as long as there's been one, really, or one conceived as such. You know, I mean, if you had a you know dime for every time somebody said Latinos are not a monolithic group on yeah. either Fox or MSNBC, you know, you could retire yesterday. I have a lot um, of but I think that's really coming home to roost now mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, honestly thinking, and you know, this has been a very controversial thing in kind of Latino studies and, and the academic study of, of Hispanics. At some point, it is fair to wonder where the conceptual groundwork or the conceptual integrity of Latinos as a group, as a group identity comes from, right? And and what utility it serves other yeah. than as, you know, some kind of kind of gross geographic central, geographic slash linguistic generalization. And I'm just, you know, yeah. we could talk well, about that a bit, but I mean, I, you know, you know, I, I think it is a an underappreciated piece of this. I mean, because if you had said, hey, we need to look at the Mexican-American vote, the Cuban-American vote, and the Puerto Rican-American vote, taking, you know, the two, the three biggest nationalities, setting aside mm-hmm. Central America, again, as a region, 
which in, in itself would break you into some, you know, would yeah. require you to break out Salvadorans and Nicaraguans. And you see where I'm going. I mean, on one hand, that makes a lot more sense and you're less likely to have this confusion over, well, wait a minute, what about the, you know, Miami Hispanics versus the, you know, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And I think that that has not been fully confronted in part because of, you know, the, the way that we've settled on the fact that we talk about Hispanics and Latinos as a, as a racialized group. And, and one of the problems that we've talked about on you that I've you've mentioned on here before is that, you know, the implicit comparison, which is sometimes, you know, very misleading with African-Americans. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you even leave out of that, you know, the addition layered complexity of, uh, you know, generational status, right? So are you, you know, are you a first generation American? Is a second generation? I mean, what, you know, and that adds another layer across the races and ethnicities in terms of, you know, incorporation yeah. to the size. So it's just, anyway, anyway, we could probably just talk about this for a while. Maybe we're kind of right. dancing around, I guess, <laughs> you know. What you know? What we think the potential challenges were here, although we're yeah, no, I think that's it. right. And so you know, I mean, so let's you know, let's talk about the the, the you know the, the quickly again, the, you know, the narratives that are out there. You know, so the return, you know, this week has been the return of the shy Trump voter. <laughs> right? Did you did you see the shy Trump voters driving down Main Street in their caravan? <laughs> I did waving their flags too high. Yeah, no, yeah, real uh, shy. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, exactly. Now you know. So, yeah, so we can lay out, you know, the shy Trump voter theory is, you know, basically, at least in it's in one form that people responding to po polls that support Donald Trump feel social pressure to not admit that they that they favor him, that they would that they would vote for him. Right. You know, and this, I should say, is something is a is a theory I feel like comes much more from pundits. Uh, than from actual pollsters. I don't really hear pollsters making this theory because to be honest, there's almost no evidence for it. And in fact, you know, this was a consideration in 2016. Pollsters went back, looked at their data. They've been doing a lot of stuff in the meantime experimentally to figure out, you know, is this even, is this plausible? Is this likely to be the case? And, and you know, as the simplest kind of quickest example of why it's probably not is it doesn't matter whether you ask people whether they, you know, who they support with a live interviewer, someone on the other end of the phone who's a human being who presumably is the person that you would be beaten shy in front of, or whether you answer the question online or via text message or to a robot. If it was the case that you know, Trump voters were shy about expressing their preferences, then you'd expect to see greater support for Trump in polls where the person's not where the respondent's not actually talking to an actual person. But we don't see that. I mean, there's some other problems with this that also that are you know more complicated. But we don't see this. And I mean, I think, you know, and the other piece of this is, I, I got to say, I really, I almost despise this argument. Despise is a strong word. But part of it to me is the extent to which pundits who don't really conduct polls are talking about what it sounds like is a group of people expressing a preference that they can't imagine people would express, even though 70 million people express that preference. Like, it's yeah. not as though, you know, there aren't Trump voters in a lot right. of places. And your I joke mean, earlier about the shy Trump voters kind of speaks to, the, you know, I mean, why on one hand it might seem, you know, even less likely this time, given that we're not seeing a lot of evidence of shyness among many Trump voters, given boat parades and caravans and, you know, MAGA merchandising. And, yeah. but, you know, I mean, it's, it's fair to say that those, you know, I mean, the media coverage of those events, those 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 folks may not be representative of your average Trump voter, just to be Fairly, fair. Right. You know, I you know, I 
as we think about this, and we were just talking as we came on about uh, the New York Times, Nate Cohen's piece on kind of explaining, you know, his mm-hmm. first cut at this, which he ends by saying, you know, as we all are, um, we're going to have to wait and see as yeah. he's kicking around the ideas. But, you know, you know, the idea that there might be something that's that's different that could overlap the existence of shy Trump voters, the idea of non-response bias that. Mm-hmm. You know, that that Biden supporters are more likely to respond to polls and Trump voters are less likely to rem- respond to polls. I, I think I think it was in the Nate Cohen piece, you know, the suggestion that the anti-institutional bias of some section of Trump voters and particularly the anti-media bias is so strong that they would not want to respond to pollsters. Maybe. Sure. You know, maybe. I'd like to test that more. You know, you know, I mean, it would be interesting, you know, to see, trying to think if we had any items that we could really test that well, on. Well, you, know, you know, but well, what, I mean, well, people have done this in some other ways. I mean, one of the things, and you know, again, we won't get too complex here, but I mean, ultimately, we call this non-response bias, and it's something that's common in polls. And we just, there are some groups of people who are just more likely to respond to polls than other people. And we saw this in 2016 in the sense that, you know, the big... The big alleged problem of 2016 was the overrepresentation of college-educated voters. Right. Well, college-educated people are just more inclined to sit on the phone with a pollster or with the call center rather right. for you know a certain amount of time talking about what they think about stuff, and that's just part of life. It's something that we deal with, and so you know this idea of non-response bias was something that was being kicked around in the professional community. I think you know even I recall the last time I looked it was at least you know six seven months ago. As we we're coming to the election, people were thinking yeah, about yeah sure this. you know it's it's and, come up. And they, what they did was, is you know, because a lot of polls will ask at the end of the poll who they voted, for, who you voted for in 2016. And number one, there wasn't like a, a huge evidence of you know shyness there about reporting yeah. who you voted for. But one of the things you could do is you could weight the results of your survey back to the demographics of the 2016 electorate and the vote share. And right. in doing that, in most polls that that looked, and most pollsters who looked into this, it didn't change their results. That was the thing; it barely moved it at all, and really yeah. in no consistent direction. So there's it's the preliminary evidence on that front is also relatively weak but we'll see that will get looked at mode so but the most so the most common you know or not the most common the most plausible thing is you and i've been talking about it does go back to something that again that we've talked about here before but it's kind of in a way has we we talked about it a few weeks ago mostly in the in the realm of carping I would yeah. say is in it? terms of talking about people not disclosing their likely voter models and mm. and you know the whole the you know the art the science and you know I think to the point when we talked about it the mystery of people's likely voter models mm-hmm. turns out that's I think you know that's going to loom pretty important here uh in terms of people estimating what the actual population was and we've kind of talked about it on here before on, on the podcast before but it's becoming apparent that all the uncertainty in the electorate in terms of the increase in turnout, who is going to vote, you know, Pandemic. just just the size the of the electorate, you know, writ large, really underlines the idea that we really got to think a little bit more about what, how we're defining likely voters and how we're communicating that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm not allowed to carp. Is that right? <laughs> no, no, no. You can carp a little. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I think the basic premise here is that every estimate of, of an electoral outcome has some underlying electorate basically assumed in that estimate. Now, again, pollsters may be more or less uh, explicit about about how much they want to guess at the electorate, but ultimately it's a guess. 
right? And this is the key thing here is that normally, you know, I, I've been saying for, you know, at least last week or so, it's frustrating because, you know, election polling is just a subset of all surveys. And in most cases, when we conduct surveys, we know a lot about the population we're surveying. In fact, we know, you know, usually, you know, very, we usually have very good information about the populations we're surveying. So if you ask and me- we, And it, we know more and more all the time now, given the use of databases and- you know, Yeah, yeah, data, exactly. Quote unquote. Right. And so, but I mean, in the simplest sense, you know, if someone tells, you know, a pollster to go conduct a poll of adults in Texas, we can go to the most recent census data and the most recent census estimates to tell us what share of the adult population should be male between the ages of 18 and 30 with a college degree. We can know that. We actually have really good data about that kind of stuff. We have no data besides prior elections and what people tell us when it comes to deciding what the actual electorate is going to look like. And so ultimately, it forces pollsters to come up with, you know, again, there's a likely voter model that says, okay, well, how are we going to include people in this electorate? But then underlying that, again, is is, an, is a composition of the electorate. And I think, you know, that makes a big difference. I mean, yeah. and I was joking with you last week, but I mean, I feel like when I started in this role, people would ask us all the time. They'd say, well, well what, you know, we put out an election estimate, people would say, well, what share of that, what share of your likely voter sample is Hispanic? You know, and it was often Democrats would ask, but the assumption being that we didn't have enough Hispanics in the likely voter sample was kind of what the underlying. This was, you know, right. seven or eight years ago. And you'd go and you'd say, oh, it's this or that. And we'd say, hey. seven or eight months ago. <laughs> yeah, it's true. But I mean, but then the thing is, I feel like those questions have kind of kind of stopped. I mean, and I don't know whether it's the volume of polling that took place. I mean, certainly in Texas, there was an increased volume of polling, but it felt like there was a volume of polling everywhere. And to a large extent, you know, and I'm not blaming the media for this, but but the reporting of it was just say, here's the estimate. It's by this per, you know, by this person, this group, this institution. It's of likely voters in Texas. And that was about the extent of the information. And the thing that I think we're always curious about, and we're always looking into when we see these new results is, well, one, how did you define a likely voter? And two, what what is what's the composition of this electorate then that's producing this result? And in a lot of cases, that information was not available. I would say in most cases, actually, that information was not made available yeah. to anybody. And I think, you know, you combine, you know, I think the difficulty of handicapping what an electorate would look like, like in Texas that adds, you know, two to three million voters, depending on whether you're comparing it to 2016 or 2018. Again, the likelihood of a, of a pandemic and a, and an and a, economic crisis, pulling more voters into the polls because of the fact that politics all of a sudden becomes more pertinent and more salient to people if it's affecting their livelihoods. And I think there's a lot of uncertainty around that. And I think, you know, the polling, I, I'm going to say the entirety of the polling enterprise from pollsters to aggregators to the media and the way that they reported it really glossed over all the uncertainty inherent in that and just started saying, you know, well, Biden's up eight. Yeah, and, you know, yeah, we have a ninety percent probability of winning. Yeah, and and not to be too, you know, I don't know if this is abstract or not to be too whatever about it, but I mean, I think the bottom line is that you know you were kind of you know kind of laying this out is that you know we're actually estimating a population, we're estimating a, we're taking a sample from an mm -hmm. estimated population that actually does not exist at the time that we're polling. Right. <laughs> because no, because people are, you know, because we're estimating what the electorate is going to look like after the fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I and think that is a, you know. Difficult. That is not <laughs> captured. That is not captured in the standard margin of error measure. No. And the standard margin of error measure in and of itself is actually. Sampling know, error. 
that's only on. sampling error. So when you hear, you know, the margin of error in a poll, what you're talking about is you're talking about sampling error, the real overall error with, you know, what they call with design effects, which account for non-response bias and the weighting is usually about twice that. So, so just from, just from the beginning of this, you know, we are as a collective, whatever group of group of people pushing, putting this information out, but, you know, we are basically decreasing the amount of uncertainty that we say that we have by about half, which, you know, again, yeah. uncertainty is part of the enterprise. It's a sample. And again, as you point out, like, and this is the key thing, it's a, it's an estimate of the preferences of a population that doesn't exist. Which, you know, when you, and when you say it that way, it's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. <laughs> I, I mean, it's also like why, you know, we, we kind of, we often go, ah, election polling over, let's get back. Thank goodness the session is coming and we can talk about policy where we know what the population we're estimating is, is stable, it exists. Well, and you know, and in that, the interesting thing about that kind of work is it's really more about asking the right kinds of questions. Where in yeah. election polling, the question is fixed, more or less. I mean, there's some, some ways in which it might not be, but the question is fixed. It's this candidate, that candidate, and whoever else is on the ballot. But the real nub of how accurate your estimate is going to be is going to come down to getting the, the the mix of groups in the electorate close to right but even even you know even on but that even that's problematic thing, but even that's even that question there were some polls that you know didn't you know didn't do trial ballots that got in other words they yes. asked would you vote for the republican donald trump the democrat joe biden or someone else now oh, there's so many problems with that yeah, and there's huge problems. And clearly there were people doing that. We won't name any names. But if you go back to our polling blog and you follow some links, you'll see you'll see people that did that. Yeah. And it's problematic, right? So that's just, you know, that's a, a just a thing that occurred to me that, you know, we could if we were to really like take those things apart. So I mean, as we think about this, I mean, uh watch for an op-ed that Josh and I think will probably be circulating later in the week and unless they don't like it. And it's just a very you know, short opening gambit at this, but I, I, you know, we'll talk about this more and, and we'll have some more stuff at the website what? going forward. But, you know, two things here, one disclosure and more transparency. That is, you know, there's been a discussion that's been going on for 15 or 20 years now about better norms of disclosure, better standards of practice in terms of how poll results are reported out by the people doing the polls and the entities that are reporting them and you know in the last for the last decade or so aggregating them quote unquote mm -hmm. in other words the rc the real clear politics and the 538s of the world we've really got to revisit that in terms of the issues we've been talking about today you know and 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 there's got to be an intermediate piece of that that is about better explanation and better contextualization and i think that you know, one of the things that's happened as an unhappy result of the presence of poll aggregators and, you know, sections of the New York Times and the Washington Post and, the, you know, the, you know, the major media outlets that say, hey, this is our kind of data science, data journalism section yeah. where, you know, basically, and this is the key part, if you're interested, you can learn a lot more about this. Mm -hmm. That has not stopped the beat reporters and the people and the daily kind of horse race coverage from simply reporting the numbers and moving on without any context. And something about that has got to change that I, that I think acknowledges the fact that, look, people complain, are going to complain about this. Polling is not going to go away because it's what you got. 
and it's too yeah. deeply ingrained. So it's got to be how we do it that has got to get better. And it's got to be reporting. Some of it is reporting on our end, but a lot of it is also going to be how it's propagated. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, something that I've been saying throughout this cycle is that, you know, these are just estimates. These are not, you know, perfect representations. These are the best attempts of, you know, I think usually, you know, straight shooters who are trying to do the best work they can. Because it's really, look, I mean, this isn't a point. Like, there's no, I mean, the idea that, like, there's, there's this question of, like, oh, is this just liberal pollsters? Well, look, as a, there's two things I kind of point out against that. Number one there's no point in doing a, a bad job professionally to advance your career. That doesn't really work. And so a bunch of people doing a bad job for some kind of, you know, perceived abstract good, let alone the fact that I don't believe that, you know, poll results being out really changes behavior much in an election and especially in this election. But ultimately pollsters don't get more work by doing bad estimates. So I just don't really buy that. But the other thing is, is that people are talking about sort of the liberal, you know, liberal media bias or the you know liberal bias and wanting to see these kinds of election results but the truth is it wasn't as though the campaign pollsters were doing a ton better some were but if you look for example you know at the final days of the campaign for both trump and biden trump campaigned in iowa on the sunday before the election even though he won the state by eight points and biden campaigned in ohio on monday before going on to lose that state by eight points if their data was so much better and so much, you know, less problematic than the data that was publicly available. I don't see why. Presumably, they'd have made different decisions. Yeah. Presumably. So, just to set that aside. Right. So, I think we're going to wind it up there. We will. Thanks to Josh. Thanks to the folks in the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you for listening. Thanks to all the people that voted, even though they made the polling much more difficult, at least in part. And we will be back next week. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.